welcome to the Artist Appeals. This is Erin Sparler and I'm your host. In the Artist Appeals, we interview artists, crafters, photographers, and business professionals about the business of art. I hope you'll join us and enjoy the show. In this episode, we're going to talk to a lovely lady who is a fine art photographer. She and her husband, who has since passed, were both photographers, and they're both teachers. She's lectured all over the world, including the United States, Australia, Germany, Tuscany, England, France, Iceland, and Australia, and is just recently back from teaching workshops in China. She also has her work in many galleries and museums across the United States. In fact, her photographs are in over 40, yes, that's right, four zero. 40 museums, including the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, the Cleveland Museum of Art, the Museum of Fine Arts in Houston, the Philadelphia Museum of Art, the Norton Museum of Art, the West Palm Beach, and her works in the Library of Congress. Her work is just spectacular, so rich, so beautiful, so luxurious. And she has multiple books out of her photography as well, and a publishing company. So please allow me to introduce you to the wonderful, the sweet Paula Shemley. Hi, Paula. Welcome. Thank you. (laughs) I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. So Paula, you are a photographer and I remember seeing your artwork for the first time many, many years ago, 10 or 15 now, I think for me. You and your husband, Michael, I came to one of your exhibits, one of your lectures, and I'll never forget, you guys said, um, the difference between an amateur photographer and a professional is the amateur photographer, you know, sees a scene, stands there, takes the picture. A professional photographer gets on the rope, climbs down the cliff, and is hanging off the cliff to get the shot. And I thought, that's fantastic. Well, I don't remember that exact comment, but <laughs> <laughs> there are amateur photographers who can take great pictures as well. Oh, yes, definitely. But I just thought that that distinction of doing anything to get the shot, even looking like a fool, was fantastic. And it's really stuck with me. So I always like to start talking about the art and what you make at the beginning of these to give some people a picture of what you do and what you make. How would you describe? what you do, and what you make? Uh, What we do is primarily is make photographs, but we also publish very, very high-end photography books. Yeah. These, our publishing is something that Michael started in 1981, which was Mm -hmm. nine years before I knew him. So I was not a part of that until we married in 1990, and I started uh, working with the publish our publishing with him. Mm-hmm. The publishing company is called Lodima Press, L-O-D-I-M-A, which mm-hmm. is Amidal. What's that spelled mean? Backwards. Oh, I never knew that. Well, surprise! Amidal is an old-fashioned developer that uh, was made rather famous, probably became most well-known because Edward and Brett Weston used it. And if you don't use gloves, it turns your fingernails black. Amidal (laughs) happens to be the best 
developer, the highest reduction potential of any developing chemical, for silver chloride contact printing paper. Mm-hmm. You use different developers for enlarging papers, but we use only contact mm-hmm. printing papers. So it's a perfect marriage with the long tonal scale of the contact printing, uh, the silver chloride contact printing paper and the chemistry. So all of that led to our eventual high-risk task of getting uh, silver chloride paper made and continued Mm. for photographers after Kodak discontinued the famous Azo, which was the only contact printing paper in the world. And it had been made Mm. for, I don't know, maybe a hundred years. So when Kodak gave it up, we knew that there would never be another paper as fine as that unless we could figure out Mm -hmm. a way to have it made. And therein led to a six-year high-risk task of trying to raise the money and find the producers and find the chemists and find a way to get it manufactured. It's difficult. It's expensive. And anyway, we, we finally got yeah. it done in, in a co- <laughs> with a company in Germany. Uh-huh. But the interesting thing, let me just sort of give this some context for all yeah, artists yeah. and photographers, no matter what their medium is. Basically, you spend an entire lifetime developing these relationships, the friendships mm. and the contacts and the connections that even give you an ability to even think of doing something as incredibly crazy as what we did because everyone <laughs> said it was totally impossible. <laughs> it's totally nuts and I love it. It's fantastic. You're preserving something that needs to be preserved. And it was hard. It was very hard because we had yeah. no money. We had to borrow or raise mm. all the money, every penny. Did you guys do the, a Kickstarter project. or... Well, what we did back then, actually, uh, Kickstarter and GoFundMe type things were not in general use at all. I don't even know if they've oh, been yeah. introduced at all. So we, yeah. going back to the, the your network of contacts that you've established over the years, we wrote to all of our photographer friends, analog mm. photographer friends, and said, mm-hmm. if you can provide X amount of money or make a donation, not a donation, but put money up front, Yeah, we will promise you uh, this, the first run of the paper at a discount. So we were mm, able, yeah. we had to raise over $100,000 for that. Wow. And mm-hmm. we had another partner who had to raise even more than that because we had a full five years of research and development with uh, mm. a lot of chemists and engineers in Germany. Kodak destroyed the formula and destroyed the the coating machines and wouldn't allow any boutique industry to buy it or get any uh, (sighs) information from them. Oh my God. That's like destroying knowledge. That's like destroying a library. That's horrible. So we had to find early engineers and chemists who were out from under their non-disclosure contracts and so forth to try to begin to pull the seeds of information together and Mm. get the project done because it's extremely expensive to make fine, extremely high-end emulsions. 
and yeah, uh, contact yeah. printing paper, silver chloride paper requires special machines because the element of chloride is involved, which is not the case with enlarging papers. So anyway, mm -hmm. all of that is to say for making our photographs, selling our books, selling the photo mm -hmm. paper, I can tell any artist your your contacts, your connections, your your networking in in a full and honest way, not for the sake of using people, but for the sake of of helping each other. Yeah, sharing is your gold mine. And basically yeah. Over the years, now when I met Michael, he'd already been photographing for about, let me think, uh, 25 years. And I had mm -hmm. been photographing at that time for about 8 to 10 years because I came to photography mm -hmm. from painting. So mm, together, over 50 years, we mm -hmm. have cultivated uh, a mailing list. A lot of that, mm -hmm. of course, is constantly changing and not relevant anymore. But your mailing list, your contacts are your network. Basically, that's your gold mine because it's the only resource you have to draw from if you're going to then put information on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or, you know, how, however you get it yeah. out there. These contacts yeah. are important. And, and I must say that I'm Such not. Such great advice. I'm not uh, a professional at the social media thing at all. Your younger artists are going to be just dynamite at that because they understand it and can do it more efficiently than I can. But since Michael yeah, passed away... Yeah, but not away, everybody. Oh. oh, I'm sorry to hear that. He passed away in 2018. Since then, I mm. have been running all of our... Uh, operations here entirely alone, including our mm. nonprofit institution called Arts of Our Time. So that doesn't give That's me a lot of work. time for Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, but you know, I think you can offer some wonderful advice to people who aren't interested in doing it the modern way with social media and stuff, because yeah, that, that doesn't appeal to everybody. Not everybody is into the technology. Certainly, I know a lot of artists are, are frustrated by it. So what methods or tips or tricks, we might be getting ahead of ourselves, but I'd love to know how you manage some of that. Now, the art world, of course, as everyone knows, has never been a level playing field. But in today's world with uh, digital media, we depend more and more on the websites, email, mailings. I send out a MailChimp offer of uh, book sales or print sales or announcements of workshops or teaching and so forth occasionally. Mm -hmm. And MailChimp's easy to use and free, right? Up right. to, I think, 2,000 users? Well, actually, I have a mailing list larger than that, so I pay a fairly large monthly fee for it. And I have mm -hmm. a tech assistant. My tech assistant is okay. the one who can help me handle a lot of digital media things. And then another photographer yeah. friend helps me post something on Facebook occasionally because I, I simply don't have time for those things. But anyway, yeah, a photographer but friends... Help where you need it is good. Yeah. And friends, photographer friends from around the world have come to my rescue since Michael passed away. So they have <laughs> oh, offered to help do some things for me in terms of, you know, posting some things and helping out and so forth. 
we talked a little bit about the art that you're making and we talked about the books. Your product is fine art prints and they're black and white and they're just gorgeous. And then the books as well. But you also teach a lot, I believe, as well. Didn't you guys start an amazing studio on your property a couple of years ago? Yes, we we have four buildings here in our compound. Mm. The main, the largest building is dedicated to uh, future events for Arts of Our Time. We're still working mm. on that. Mm-hmm. And my it's like an exhibit studio. Yes, it's an exhibit okay. and seminar space, and it's mm. actually a, a two-story building. So the downstairs is guest space as well as a very large area for our drum scanners and our big printers mm-hmm. because we, mm. uh, Michael and I have both photographed in color with uh, mm-hmm. 8x10 inch film. So that mm-hmm. has to be drum scanned and then converted to digital files because we make very large inkjet prints for some collectors and for museums. So wow. we have certainly had to marry a lot of digital technology with our analog and darkroom processes. Right. To back, to back up just a moment, my, since I began yeah. as a painter, Mm-hmm. My studio involves drawing and painting and collage and assemblage and a little bit of mm-hmm. sculpture. So all of those Fantastic. mediums help me make uh, new visual discoveries, which is what we all do, whether we're making photographs or books or whatever. We're looking for new ways to make what we hope are strong artworks. But I would differentiate yeah. the product from artworks. I don't consider artworks to be product exactly, although one could call it that. I think of the photo printing paper and the books as products. We also have a mat board business where we sell very, very high-end archival Archival. materials for uh, mounting and storing. Fantastic photographs. So the product are these objects that are, you know, basically easier to sell by the unit. The artwork is something that we also try to sell, of course, but one has to get it out there in the world very differently. Yeah, it informs the product. I think that's an integral part of what we have to understand as artists is that the artwork is very important, but then the product informs, the artwork informs the product and the product supports the artwork. And artwork is work. It takes a lot of work to do, but the product is a way, like I have to wrap my head personally around my work as a product sometimes so that I can let it go. I don't know if you have that same challenge, but it's hard for me to let the artwork go, but I can let a product go a lot easier. I don't have an emotional attachment to it. Right. I understand that. What you're talking about is multiple revenue streams with your product. And I love that. You know, you, you have supporting products, products that are informed by the art and support the product, right? We've actually had to do that over the years. Um, 
Michael and I have done something during our lifetimes that a lot of artists aren't willing to do. And that is to Mm. take an enormous amount of risk with everything Mm -hmm. we've done because we've never had savings accounts or trust funds or rich families Mm -hmm. or anything to support us. We don't have teaching pensions from a university, Mm -hmm. from those positions that pay really well. We've had to support ourselves by meeting collectors and having museum shows and occasional Mm -hmm. gallery uh, exhibitions and try to find ways to support ourselves with the artwork. The Mm -hmm. book publishing is important for photographers because that's the way the world is going to learn about your work. Very few people Mm -hmm. are going to see your exhibitions. The work that Mm -hmm. that flows through Instagram and Mm -hmm. on Facebook is, you know, fleeting. So, yeah, if you're going... So transient. Yes. If you want your work to be seen, making a fine art photography book is one way to do it. That is a very expensive venture when it's done well, because all good printing is expensive. And the process is expensive, but you do it in order to support your work. You're not going to get rich off of bookmaking ever, Mm -hmm. but that can also be a calling card and a way to have a permanent thing of some of your bodies of work. No one's ever going to know the full scope of all your bodies of work, but you have to be, I think you have to be multidimensional as an artist to, if you're not already, you know, well off and don't have to worry about the money, but we've, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, we've borrowed money from many, many different sources and then always managed to pay it back and (laughs) get out of debt. But yeah, but it isn't easy. It takes commitment. It takes commitment. And if you love the medium and if you love what you're doing, you'll find a way, you know, you've, It's hard to get grants, but grants are out there. So it all takes some time and commitment to make all that work. Yeah. And I think you expand one thing at a time. I love what you said about books supporting the work. I have one of your books. Um, I have the book you did cataloging the small grocery stores and corner stores of San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And to me, I love to pick that book up every once in a while because it's a memory I went to grad school in San Francisco, and I just loved this concept that you documented these little corner stores. They're just fantastic. So a book is really a way to educate people as to your larger body of work, because I know that this body of work, this, these photographs of the corner store is not your main cornerstone or, or theme, but it really educates them as to the, the body of your work. So that kind of actually brings us into educating your audience about what you do. How do you communicate this? You know, how do you communicate everything you're doing? That's difficult because uh, it's primarily by having, trying to um, have some exhibitions, teaching announcements through newsletters, staying in touch with your mailing list and letting them know what's going on. Mm-hmm. You try to guide people to some new bodies of work that perhaps you've put on your website that are not yet published because we have 
many, many bodies of work that aren't published. Yeah. We each have seven published books of our own of various large series, and uh, uh-huh. I'm working on publishing two more this year. Oh, fantastic. You're educating audiences by doing these blogs and podcasts for artists who have time and can be articulate. I think uh, blogs are an excellent way. There are groups, interest groups on the internet, you know, such as analog and digital photography groups. If you're a member of that and you participate either by just reading the comments or by offering help, then um, that's one way to get it out there. It's important to attend events, big Mm -hmm. photography events. And if you're a publisher, you need to attend book expos, some important book expos. Okay. So you take your photography books to different expos. Like what's some of your favorites? Uh, The most important one that we did in the past, we started in uh, 2006. We participated in Paris Photo in Paris with a publisher's booth. And we did that for five continuous years. It's very expensive to do this. So no one needs to think that, oh, I'm going to go make a lot of money. You're going to make contacts. That's what you're going to do. You're going to meet people you're going to learn what other book publishers are doing, and you, you're probably going to meet some people who are interested in the photographs in your books. So mm-hmm. you, you don't know what's going to happen, but you're going to invest in hope. We did that for five years until Paris Photo was purchased by a different exposition, traveling exhibition company, and they moved it yeah. to the Grand Palais in Paris, which was a much more expensive venue to be in. So the oh, rates wow. the rates in for publishers booths increased so dramatically we couldn't afford to keep doing it and it now mm-hmm. is mostly the bigger publishers and uh book right. distributors who participate. But in those 5 years we met an enormous number of foreign photographers, editors, curators, gallerists mm-hmm. just the circle widened in other words. Yeah. Then we did when APAD in New York at the Association for International Photography Art Dealers opened mm-hmm. their space for the first time to book publishers. We rented uh, a small booth space, basically tables. And the reason we did this at both Paris Photo and APAD is because the biggest collectors around the world attend those two events more than any others in the art world that we know of. If you can afford to go to photo London and Tokyo and Shanghai and Brazil, if you can afford to do all these others, you know, great. It it would be wonderful, but it's a big expense to transport. But if you've got a pick, go to the big ones. Yeah. (laughs) If you can get in, they're juried. Both of these oh, yeah, things yeah. are jury, yeah. so there's no guarantee you get yeah. in. So for books, that now there are book fairs. Frankfurt, Germany has an important book fair, and if you're strictly a publisher. So there are many other options out there. You just have to research 
the ones that you think would be the most useful and that you could afford to deal with. Yeah. You know, I've heard this from other guests as well, the importance of networking and going to conferences. For example, Michael Woodward was on recently, and he's an art licensing agent that's been in the art licensing field for like 40 years. He's practically the father of art licensing. And he really talked about how he doesn't have to go to these anymore because he did them for so long and he created such a wonderful network of contacts. Exactly. You know, I have to back up. I skipped presentation. (laughs) But I do think we talked a little bit about the quality of the work you're doing with the creation and reinventing the wheel. I can't believe you guys had to reinvent the wheel from Kodak for these these silver prints. I just I can't believe they destroyed it. It's oh, yeah, it's just it so did. sad. That was it was a big deal. <laughs> I can't tell you. We were out on a limb. Uh, I can't tell you how far yeah. out on a limb. It's a miracle it all came together. It came together. Thankfully, it did. So, with presentation, what would you give advice to um, people about presentation? Because you guys are such. I don't want to say perfectionist because that's taken negatively, but you have to be a perfectionist in the art world. And your presentation is just spectacular. I I have one of your prints. I have one of your books. They're just, I don't have the word luscious. They are. Yes. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. So how do you guys present your work so that it shows in the best light? Because that's the ticket to getting into these juried exhibits and juried conferences, right, is having quality presentation. How do you convey that through social media and through exhibits and blah, 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 blah? Well, I think you're asking a rather impossible question. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. I I will do that, but I'll give it a go. Go for it. (laughs) Because if you're visiting a museum curator and you want to show them work, you're going to take a, a proper selection of photographs. You, usually mm-hmm. they say they will look at no more than X number. So you've edited a good body of work to show. Right. And, and that's you like, have to, you have to be a good editor. 20? Yeah. It depends. Yeah. You have to really be tight. It you depends. have to really pick. The, curator, the curators at the Getty, the Modern, the Metropolitan, Chicago Institute of Art, they all have different guidelines. And those, you know, they'll Mm -hmm. tell you what their guidelines are. Uh, Sometimes they'll say, bring in 20, no more than 20, no more than 30, Mm -hmm. or whatever. Mm -hmm. And if you're hand carrying, you're going to be hand carrying these finished prints. And I think finished Mm -hmm. prints should always be presented as if they were going to be in an exhibition, not framed. But in our case, mounted and overmatted. If you have extremely large digital prints, we actually carried Mm -hmm. around a 30 by 40 inch. No, I think they were 36 by 48 inch prints in a very, very large portfolio case so that we didn't have to take them in rolls. And we sort of adhered them to a backing so that they could be Mm -hmm. handled a little more easily so wow. you, you can pull them out. 30 by 40. Yeah. Wow, that's, that's big. Heavy. That's nearly three <laughs> feet. I have a I have a case here at the house that um I have my portfolio in and I'll have to see if I can dig it up on the internet. But it's a silver briefcase and it actually fits perfectly 
13 by 19 prints that have been matted and mounted on archival backer with, I, I think it's two and a half to three inch over frame, uh, mats. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it can be done. It is heavy. It's very heavy, but it holds, I think, about 20 of them. Well, your impression, your first impression is uh, going to probably be the only impression you're going to leave with them in that meeting. Yeah. So mm-hmm. the curators will tell you what it is they want to see. If you say, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I'm bringing 20 prints that are X number of size, they they want to be able to accommodate you with either a big table or big print rails or whatever. Right. They're They're very gracious. But the work has to be perfect. You can't yes. go in there and make an apology for anything. This mm. this represents you. And when I say editing, I mean, you really have to be objective. And if, as an artist, you can't be, you call in a curator friend. You call in somebody who has mm. a very well-informed opinion, not just mm-hmm. your buddy not who may mom. not be an artist. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not mom, but... Yeah, mom loves it all. Mom loves it all, right. And this is the problem sometimes with spouses. The spouses say, oh, honey, that's great. I really like that. Well, they they're not. They may or may not be an artist. So somebody with a good informed opinion will say, I don't think this is your best work. You need to show, you know, are you showing a variety of work or are you showing a cohesive single body of work? You have to make a decision. and. What Most of these curators want some writing. You you will need something like a, a concise artist statement and something mm-hmm. to set the work in context, why you did it hmm. or where you did it or something that explicates the work to just give more information, not to try to glorify the work at all. You have to just give it some context so that the curators yeah. have an idea. Uh, you can say, I've been working for the last 10 years on hot dog stands in the northeast part of Canada, and this is the culmination of that work in over various seasons, and and you can mention mm-hmm. your equipment if you're using digital or whatever. Another thing that uh, curators like to know these days are the materials. What are the materials? Because in terms right. of purchasing something for a collection, even collectors, of course, have to know this. They need to know how to preserve it. So that's presented a whole new ball of wax for the digital world because gallerists love and dealers love to say that something, the color work is archival when it may or may not be. That has not been proven at all yet Mm. by the chemists and engineers who analyze these things and see just how long those pigments will hold up under Mm -hmm. various conditions. But anyway, that's another topic. Oh, I like that topic. I'm fascinated by archival attributes because it really is. The digital stuff is so recent, so modern. Yeah, they do tests, but time has not proven those tests, right? No, the jury is still out on on the proper scientific proof of certain uh, inks and pigments. Everybody loves to use the term archival pigment print. Right. You know why? It just sounds better than inkjet. It is not (laughs) better than inkjet. 
Interesting. It depends on your, how you have, uh, it depends on your inks and your paper and your process. And have you married all of those things together to get the highest quality, the most beautiful print. And hopefully as archival as it can be with what we know now. Yeah. I mean, that's the best any of us can hope for. And you always keep color out of direct light anyway. So everybody knows that. And that's true of all mediums because there's some amazing paints out now, you know, some of these pinks and oranges, and they're completely fugitive. They're completely going to fade, right? So you know that as a painter. Yes. As a painter, I'm, I'm very much involved with using higher end materials the watercolors mm-hmm. and oils and I do I've done a lot with sumi ink over the last oh, sumi six, ink. several years so on my website I think on our website you have to click on Michael and I share the website of course you click on photographs and then my name and then underneath that there's a place that says works on paper and you can mm-hmm. see many examples it's all abstract work by the way oh wonderful and use that kind of as a meditation, a balance to your, your photography. I love the fact that you're doing both. These things all inform each other. And that is just so beneficial to me because in my studio, I'm working with maybe five to 10 different things at once because I can put that drawing or assemblage aside and think about mm-hmm. it and just let it hit me uh, when I walk in the studio and say, oh, now I see what that needs. And gosh, mm-hmm. I never would have figured that out. Or the color that I'm throwing down on this might be exactly what that piece over there needs. So it informs my photographing in the field as mm-hmm. well as what I'm working on in the studio. It's just a different pace. It's a different kind of deep psychological connection, emotional and psychological Mm -hmm. connection into the work. So when I'm when I'm teaching, I'm often telling photographers that if you don't work in these other materials, there's nothing wrong with that. But look at the great artists who have worked with those materials and learn from them. Look at great paintings and sculpture and printmaking and drawing because it all helps us hopefully to understand how form fits into space as artists mm, we're not that involved advice. as artists we're not involved with illustration good illustration is mm-hmm. easy but that's that's mm-hmm. just telling you what something is a fine artwork has to transcend that it has to help you feel or see more than what mm-hmm. it is of Mm. Yes. And great that's advice. where all that's where all great artworks stand the test of time, no matter what the medium, whether it's contemporary or classic or medieval. Mm-hmm. It's what will stand the test of time. It evokes more than what it is of. Yeah, it helps you see and feel something more than what the piece is. I love that. What a wonderful quote. Thank you for that. What a gift. It's been my goal with all these interviews, all the research I've been doing, my whole academic career, to figure out 
how to make money with your art. And I imagine that that's probably what you're trying to do too, right? We all want to do something that we love for a living. Yeah? Totally. Who wouldn't? Who wants a dead-end job? So, after all this research and all these interviews, I've discovered four secrets, the four top secrets to making money with your art. And now I have a 12-page report outlining the four top secrets to making money with your art. You can download this guide for free at howtomakemoneywithyourart.com. That's right, I got that domain name. So just head on over to howtomakemoneywithyourart.com, all spelled out, no numbers, and get your free report on how to make money with your art. You know, I... I I work in a lot of mediums and you hear a lot of people saying you have to specialize. You have to um, only show one medium or one this or that, or you have to really become an expert in one field. And I do think that there's a component of that, but I like what you're talking about in relationship to curating the work. I think the ticket is that you need to work in all the mediums so that they inform each other symbolically visually, mark making, emotionally, but then when you curate them, like you're saying, when you make your selection to present them to the gatekeepers, to the curators, to the collectors, you have to really... Or the gallery gallery dealer. I, you know, I didn't actually explain all the different sources, but yes, go Mm -hmm. ahead. No, I'm just summarizing kind of what you're saying. I think it's fantastic is that the editing of the presentation is crucial, but the broadness of the creation process is much bigger. It's, it's narrowing down that focus in the presentation. That's important. Well, here's an interesting thing that's changing in the photography world. Photography yeah. dealers have, in the past, if you're in a photography gallery or you're working with a photography dealer, you're showing only photography. Now, I have said for years, when are they going to discover this crossover and how important it is? Because many yeah. painters photograph. Many yeah. uh, many artists do. I mean, we're not we're not Picasso. We're not all Picasso who could do everything and be recognized for everything. It is easier right. for someone to to recognize you if they kind of know your thing, whatever that right. might be. But if you show some photography dealers will show photographs and drawings or photographs and paintings if they feel that the work is strong and that they like it because Mm -hmm. it broadens their uh, client base. Yeah. Here's a photographer who's not only multi-talented, but I have clients who I know are interested in drawing and painting or sculpture or whatever. I mean, think Mm -hmm. even as uh, Brett Weston, of course, is an easy example. He loved sculpture. He made a lot of wonderful sculptures and how fun it was Mm -hmm. to have those exhibitions of his sculpture along with the photographs because it was so easy to see how they informed each other, even though they were different mediums. Yeah. You know who you make me think of is Man Ray, too. 
Yes, yes, exactly. In a way, nowadays, yeah. it's a little easier to be multimedia. But mm-hmm. unfortunately, in the art world, most galleries and dealers, not, not curators, but most gallery people and dealers want to deal with your thing, whatever that is. You know, have right. you made your reputation by photographing this particular subject in, of course, many different ways, but it's easier for them to sell. Yeah. <laughs> and that is very yeah. unfortunate. <laughs> yeah. It's inhibiting for an artist. Yeah. You know, um, I had another photographer on and he was talking about the stories behind his work and how the stories really enhanced his sales. And they really tied the work together. What kind of stories do you like to tell around your work? I've done a a lot of interviews and I've done some writing for a couple of online magazines where those questions have been asked and I'm happy to expound on that. I don't think it's... Oh, and we can always link to some too. I don't think it's necessary to have a story except if it enhances the work. Sometimes Mm -hmm. a body of work becomes much more interesting because you have told your story about working with, uh, say, for example, underprivileged children or homeless people or Mm -hmm. whatever. You're giving some context and background that, frankly, shows your commitment and it gives people Mm. information about why they they are seeing this large body of work. I think th- those kinds of stories are important. The pictures have to be well done and hold up on their own, of course. But the stories, the stories give it context that's helpful for the viewer. Viewers like to know, mm. why did you do this? Or why did you go there? Or whatever. When I did my High Plains Farm book back in the 90s, I was photographing the family farm where I grew up on the mm-hmm. high plains of the Texas Panhandle. And hmm. I did a lot of writing about it. And I also mm-hmm. had the privilege of two other writers who wrote essays for my book who add, added their, their comments about how this fit into mm-hmm. the history of photography mm. or the yeah. history of this subject, the death of the family farm right. in America, the rural countryside, the rural family life, and so forth. So yeah. it became a poetic, photographic document for me. But I also uh-huh. did a lot of writing and personal stories that I added to the back of the book for people who wanted mm-hmm. to know, when was this? What is that? Why? You know, they wanted just more information. If they wanted more information, it was there. And when I did the project, there was a public broadcast station in Amarillo, Texas, which is near my family farm. They were Uh doing documentaries about the Dust Bowl and a number of, uh, you know, Georgia O'Keeffe's time when she lived out in that area uh, before Mm. she went to New Mexico. and. So they used my project as the lens through which they would present 
my story. So it ended up being a PBS film about me doing that project. So you never know what's going to happen. I just went there to make the photographs and see if they would work. I didn't want them to be sentimental. I didn't want them to be superficial. You know, just Uh go do the work and let the project lead you, but be aware of what's around you so that if somebody opens a door like that, you know, you're ready to jump in and and see if you can't help that explicate the work and it helped get the work out there. So that project became a photographic series, a book and a film. So that was, that became a story. So writing I think the stories are good. Yeah. Yeah. But they should but the work shouldn't depend on the story, I hope. <laughs> no. You've got to do the work to do the work, but I think sometimes the story comes afterwards and the story it can does. be a wonderful hook for the publishers and for the media and for people to resonate with. You don't know what the story is until you've done the work. Because if yes. you're working on something, the work is going to lead you. You can't, or I hope it will, if you have a preconception about what the whole thing should be, you're going to be stuck and you're going to be limited. But if Mm. you're open to letting the work lead you to what it might be able to show you that you didn't expect, Mm -hmm. then the story will evolve. I did a Mm, a little, I did a series of a local woman here. I did it in eight by 10 color and then made large Uh inkjet prints from, from the project. A local woman uh-huh. who's very uh, sweet, kind of uneducated, just simple and lovely and uh, straightforward. She decorates her salt yard. Salt of the earth. Salt of the earth person. She decorates her yard every single holiday and never has never missed a holiday since 1960. She's been doing it since 1965 and never missed a holiday. Awesome. And she just throws the stuff out there. You know, it's, it's not... Um, Better Homes and Gardens type arrangement. It's just her stuff. And it's so (laughs) pure Americana that I just loved it. So I I went over there and photographed for a full year, every holiday. Uh And I had no idea. I hope it will be a book. I I need to raise the money to do that. But I didn't know Mm -hmm. what it would be. I just knew that Mm -hmm. I needed to do that before she either got too old or too sick to to do it. Yeah. While it was there, it was there, it was charming yeah. and it was interesting. So while I was photographing, one day I just said to myself, what am I doing? And then I kind of, it just came to me. I'm celebrating Sarah. And hmm. so it has that double meaning, both as an adjective and an adverb. Celebrating Sarah is the mm. name of the series. I love so it. So you don't, and I liked, to, and I did writing about her to set it in context mm-hmm. because it's her sweet story. I'm just finding a way to collaborate. <laughs> and otherwise that story would be lost. Oh, completely. Completely. No yeah. one would even, no one remembers that. Well, all the neighbors yeah. would remember what she did, but it's just. But it uh, would fade. So anyway, these things evolve if you try to keep an open open mind, which it's always hard to do because our brain is at work inhibiting some of these mm-hmm. some of this flow. Mm-hmm. If we can kind of stay away from controlling, 
being so controlling and thinking too much, I think things often open up. And that goes with the business world too. Because if you think you've figured out the business world in today's world in marketing art, I'd love to know you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, that's the point of this podcast is to just get all these different perspectives and gather them in one place so that people can learn from them. Let me plug a friend's business because... Yeah, sure. Go ahead. For all artists, for all photographers especially, there is no one more brilliant than Mary Virginia Swanson, known as mm. Swanee to the art okay. world and all of us who know her. This woman does seminars constantly. She travels around the United States and around the world mm-hmm. doing her seminars on how to sell your work, how to present the work and how to sell the yeah. work. The woman is the Goal mine of knowledge. She keeps up with everything. She stays in contact with everybody. She's uh, she was Amazing. a brilliant photographer in her own right, but she gave it up to do mm-hmm. this business. So she does oh, lectures wow. and seminars, uh-huh. and she also does private workshops. If you can get <laughs> a private, if you're a serious artist and you can get a private workshop or a private session with Mary mm-hmm. Virginia Swanson. You'll be oh, off and running. Lady. I want all, her on the podcast. <laughs> all you have to do is just pay attention to what she says. And uh, Swanee is just the dearest, one most wonderful person in the world. I love her dearly. I don't know what her fees are. Uh, she's in so much demand that she's not always available. But yes, yeah. if you're a serious photographer and you want to figure out how to get your work out there, especially as a young emerging artist and trying to keep up with social media and how do I do this in today's world, I don't know anyone better. She's known by everyone in the photography world and she is a treasure. So anyway, that's that's my advice. Absolutely I, fantastic. I can't begin to give as much uh, marketing advice as Swanee can. Hey, well, we'll link to her down below so people can check her out. That's awesome. And that kind of brings us to licensing and contracts. We always like to, you know, with the appeal system, I'm trying to categorize this huge amount of information, art, product, presentation, educating, audiences, amplifying, and then licensing and contracts. I know so many artists and photographers are scared or intimidated by licenses or by contracts. Can you speak to how you guys manage that, how you, what you have on hand, what you do to make sure things just are in place? (laughs) In terms of keeping up with things, we have a very precise system of cataloging everything we make so that Mm. once it is for sale or on loan, at least we know where it is. And how do you do that? Well, we have a chronological system. Every single Uh negative in print has a unique number. Fantastic. So basically, things are set up chronologically rather than by place or title. The only time Ah. place is used above chronology is when it is a very cohesive project such as Michael had city commissions. So the 
entire New Orleans project was all categorized under a New Orleans database. Toledo uh-huh. was under a Toledo database, et cetera, et cetera. We did a Chicago uh-huh. project together, and all of that happens to be under a Chicago database instead of strict chronology. Everything else is in strict chronology. We don't. Interesting. Uh, I can't. I can't speak to licensing. I'm not an expert on that at all. Again, somebody mm-hmm. like Swanee knows knows it all. But uh, in terms of contracts, we drew up a very simple boilerplate contract with dealers and galleries that could easily be adjusted by either side. You know, do you want to keep the work for one year, two years, uh, how much work at a time, uh, when to expect it back, when to expect your payment if they sell it, because many dealers, unfortunately, will sell Mm -hmm. the work and the artist doesn't see the money unless Mm. you press them really hard and and sometimes you might even have to take legal action to get them to pay which is, so you have to be careful who you're dealing with and right. uh, so you definitely want a contract where signatures are enforced and these yes. don't they don't have to be complicated but what what exactly are your expectations from them and what are their expectations from you you know, shipping, yeah. preservation, showing English. the work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And those are just discussions to have. So I think those have to be sort of contoured to each occasion. Museums right. always have their own contracts mm-hmm. where, you know, how long they're going to borrow the work and who's going to pay for shipping or whatever if, it's, if they're not mm-hmm. paying for it both ways. So you don't have to worry about them. But if you're dealing with a gallery, you, you need something in writing as a um, backstop position in case things go yeah. sour. <laughs> I've been writing to yeah, a gallery I... over six months trying to say, yeah. you, uh, we're kind of, you, you've held the work longer than you said. I think it's time to send it back. <laughs> uh-huh. And I'm not oh, hearing geez. from them. Oh, oh well. No. <sighs> That's frustrating. They're overwhelmed, maybe. Well, you got to stay on top of them, say, right? It's it's not an easy business. It's yeah, yeah. You have to you have to do lots and lots of follow up, and so the paper trail that substantiates that is uh, is a good fallback position to just right. simply to protect yourself. Licensing is more uh, in general for uh, your work going out for commercial use, and. Mm-hmm. Each time I've dealt with that, the person asking for the work has had their own contracts and, and you just look it over and, and you talk between yourself, between the two parties and say, no, I don't agree yeah. with that. Let's do this. And, you know, you get right. your agreement. In you, place read and yeah. you read it. Yeah. You read it. You read it. I think it's really great to just have a contract on hand that you can use. And it doesn't have to be written by a lawyer. It just has to be plain English. But I think what you said is really important about you read it and then you talk to the person. And if you have questions, you ask questions. If you don't agree with something, you speak up. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And you have to just follow up and make sure that not only uh, the gallery owner, but perhaps their director, the gallery director or whoever is managing it, whoever Uh 
is taking care of the paperwork or the contracts or the payments. Make sure you're all on the same page and that you have plenty of information about how to reach them. <laughs> Sometimes yes. they go out of go out of business. You don't want them to disappear. <laughs> so you've got to, it's good to get their cell phone too, huh? I would get everything I could. You don't you don't have to yeah. get their fingerprints or their or their mother's <laughs> name, but <laughs> firstborn child, mother's maiden name, passwords. Right. Although that might yeah. not be a bad idea. <laughs> I think you said something very important though too that I've heard come up time and time again and I always try and espouse, which is follow up. Follow up, follow up, follow up. Oh God, yes. Your life is just full of follow up. If you're trying yeah. to reach a curator or trying to sell books to a museum or institution library, follow up, follow up, follow up. It's hard. How often and do you? Yeah. Go ahead. How often do you follow up? Like every week, every other week? Like what do you think is too much? What do you think is not enough? Oh, it depends on what you're doing. If, if they're expecting, okay. um, you know, if it's a library, you'll send an email to, well, first of all, you're going to make a phone call and find out who mm -hmm. is the head librarian. These positions change all the time. Mm -hmm. Or if it's a bookstore, who is the book buyer or who is the owner? Mm -hmm. Who makes the decisions? And then you say, would they prefer a phone call from me or an email? And find out. Mm -hmm. And then and then if you don't get a response from the email, you can write again and say, just just checking in to see if you received my email. I don't want to. I know you're busy, but mm -hmm. could you let me know if, if you're interested in this? Or would you like more information? You know, be very polite. Yeah. Make sure that your grammar and spelling is perfect. <laughs> Yeah, I've had problems with that. I'm the worst speller. So good advice. If you're going to make an impression with somebody who is very literate, which you assume a curator or a bookstore owner might be, I would be careful mm -hmm. to not make any mistakes that make them go, ugh. You know, it's a subliminal thing. It's not It's not mm. necessarily a deal breaker at all. It's just mm -hmm. they're affected by your lack of being careful and mm. treating them with complete respect. So mm. I think that's a very old-fashioned idea, but I still cling to it. Yeah, it's a good one. And it's hard to do. But you know, you got to take the time to double check, triple check. I've heard some it people say, read time. your emails backwards. Like if you read each word from the end forward. One thing that I do, I realize that in email, there are these autocorrect things that I mean, I could take it off <laughs> of the autocorrect mode. But sometimes the autocorrect is very helpful. So I have to go back if it's a super, if I'm making a first contact, for instance, I'm trying to reach somebody in a publishing department that I've never met before, and hopefully mm -hmm. I've got a, a someone's name that's recommended so I can at least get them to pay attention and read the email. Right. I send it to myself and read it, and mm. then I notice the typos because sometimes in electronic transmission, mm. a word is, uh, is sometimes dropped or it changed mm. in a way that's totally surprising. You thought you had it exactly right, but send it to yourself. See if in your, uh, when you receive it, it reads perfectly because now you're not 
you anymore. You're the person you sent it to. So how it gives you a little bit of objectivity. Gosh, I wish I hadn't said that. I should use the word shall instead of will, or maybe mm. I used the wrong tense there, or did I spell that correctly? You know, you mm-hmm. can just kind of double check yourself. This, uh, we're not oh, talking like about tip. casual emailing. We're talking. We're not talking about between friends when it doesn't matter. We're talking about being professional. And my yeah. attitude toward being professional means you have to be precise, careful, and take the time to get it right. Mm-hmm. And that segues perfectly into measurements for success. How do you measure success? What do you use? What do you think success is? Because it's so personal to the individual and the creative. How do you measure success? How do you celebrate your successes? That's very hard to answer because professionally, success in our world is measured, unfortunately, by how much you're recognized. That really isn't Mm. success. Success as an artist is when you feel very excited and gratified by the work you're doing. And that work is going to be new all the time, not for the sake of being new, but because you've made new discoveries, you've gone deeper into yourself. You have found things that you didn't know were there. You've made exciting inroads into new work because Mm. of simply the process of working Mm -hmm. and loving the work. And so I don't know what success is. I guess it's feeling good about yourself and about your work. And isn't that what life's journey is about? Trying to figure out how to get the most, be your best self and and put out the best stuff. I don't know what success is, but I I know when I feel like like I'm I'm doing something interesting. And that doesn't mean it's comfortable necessarily. Right. It often has to be very uncomfortable before I realize I'm doing something that's deeper and better and more meaningful. And I think that gets harder because the more you do, the more you say to yourself, well, I've done that. I've got to, I've got to find a new, a new inroad here. I've got to go deeper. What happens if I do this or do that? You know, make, mm-hmm. you know, that doesn't involve just making photographs or painting. For me, it means listening to new music, meeting inspiring friends, reading a new book, yeah. going, going, going out to a museum and seeing a show you never expected to see or mm. who knows what it is, travel. I, t- I was teaching yeah. in China last year in three different cities in China. And as a, a, as a guest for some wonderful photographers there. And my gosh, just being in these cultures, there were no English spoken. There were no uh, Caucasians in these areas at yeah. all. So just being so how did you in, a, in an authentic experience like that was wow, I feel like I've been broadened in a new way. I can't yeah. explain it. But I, I'm I'm different now. I'm definitely different. I had two uh, excellent translators uh, who not only could translate, but they could interpret the spirit of the right. work rather than just mechanical translating. Yeah, I had to have translators. Paula, I love that idea. I love the concept you're getting here, getting at that success for you is an expansion of self. It's it's. I love that. Yeah. It's so beautiful that success is not financial. Success is the work the expansion, the growth. 
And, you know, we have to find ways to make enough money so that we can actually do the work. So money is part of the component, unfortunately. It's, It's the drudgery part. But if you don't have something to support the work, you can't buy the materials. You can't take the trip. Yeah. You can't mm-hmm. mat it and frame it. And, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Of course. Of course, we need money. We can't live on air. <laughs> yeah, it's a fact of reality. So we just have to embrace it, and but understand it. But how much money you make is not, to me, a measure of success. Success in the art world. It it might lead yeah. to more successes. That's for sure. You know, I sat down recently and I have this PDF where I talk about how much money do you need. And it's a spreadsheet. I include a bonus spreadsheet where you can actually sit down and try and calculate, okay, if I need $50,000 to pay the mortgage and to eat, to pay the bills and so forth and so on. How do I get there with these different pieces I've made, with these different products I've made, with teaching and, you know, and multiple revenue streams? Because I think that I had never planned it out before that. I'd never sat down and actually thought about it logically of how do I support the artwork? How much do I need to have coming in in order to creep creating? And I think that's an important component is that you both have to create, you have to plan to create. Well, there definitely has to be some reality involved. Unfortunately, Michael and I never leaned too heavily into the reality part. So I guess in the end, um, you know, if you're working really hard, you're committed and you really are trying to meet people and get the work out there and find ways to support your work, good things will come to you. You know, if it's good work and you're a good person, some Somebody's yeah. going to help you out and it's not going to be without some hard work, but also don't, yeah. don't, uh, forget that most of it's on a wing and a prayer. But Paula, I would disagree with you that you guys didn't learn and lean into the reality of it because you've always done these wonderful, amazing, um, steps in your business of building and growing and expanding you know, you see a lack or you see something being destroyed and you recreate it. You see a need for a space, you build it. So I would say you guys do lean into it. And maybe people told you that it was crazy. But I think in the end, that vision was just bigger than what other people could see. The vision has been enormously large here. I I will say that. (laughs) Uh, In fact, at Michael's memorial, I, I did a a small talk on his yeah. behalf, along with some other mm-hmm. friends. And the first thing I said was, it's not easy being married to a visionary. Mm. Because we never had the money to back up the project. First, we start the project, and then we find a way to solve the problems and get the money. It's not, I'm not saying that's the smart way to do it. It's that if you really want this to happen, you better get on with your dream and then figure out how to make it work. I love it. That is, I love it. That is a great, great soundbite. So in closing, do you have any books or blogs or podcasts that you would recommend? And they don't even have to be art related, but do you have any books that you think are just fantastic? and you recommend to everybody, or would give as a gift? 
Well, I'll tell you, there's there's one book. Uh, I'm always, you know, trying to keep up with the art world through a lot of um, email and electronic means. And I don't have time for too many books. And I still read a lot of art magazines and try to keep up. But there's one book that has been particularly influencing lately, if we're going to speak strictly about a book. There's a book called The Ninth Street Women. And Hmm. it's about Lee Krasner, Elaine de Kooning, Grace Hardigan, Joan Mitchell, and Helen Frankenthaler. These Mm. five women painters were part of the movement in New York that changed modern art in America. It changed modern art in the entire world, actually. That's the first time that the world of modern art was focused more on New York than Europe. Paris, Hmm. for instance. And it's a 900-page book of basically about the history of art from the 1930s through 1950s. And it is as important today as it was then because the struggle for women to find their place in the art world and not be called women painters, but just painters. I'm not Mm -hmm. a woman photographer. I'm a photographer. I happen to be a woman, but do we call men photographers? um, He's a man photographer. I mean, that kind (laughs) of distinction has a lot to do with the way we're received and Mm. perpetuated in the art world, whether or not we get shows, whether or not someone recognizes our next book or or offers us an opportunity for a lecture series or whatever. So anyway, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful read about their personal lives because they were married. uh, Three of them were married to very famous Mm -hmm. painters. And Mm. Um, and two of them were married to very famous art critics. So how they fought for their place in the art world and how they also supported their husbands in the art world. It's a beautiful, beautiful read. It's an easy read. And um, for me, I take my time with it because I'm very interested in the history of art, mm-hmm. not just the history of yeah. photography. But Michael and I were also in one of those partnerships where we supported each other. We helped each other. Michael didn't have an ego at all that was that, that would overshadow anything I did. He wanted my work to be seen just as much as his. I mean, he wasn't jealous of any of my successes. I wasn't jealous of his successes. So having those kinds of partnerships are difficult. So beautiful. That but is they're so interesting. Beautiful. I mean, you learn a lot yeah. from that. So that's my latest book, I guess. <laughs> I'm going to have to go pick that one up. It sounds fantastic. Called Ninth Street Women by Mary Gabriel. Ninth Street Women. No, it's wonderful. I have so enjoyed this. Ninth Street Women. I'm writing it down. It's and a great I've read whether a you're a woman notes. or not. It doesn't matter. It's a wonderful history yeah. of what went on in the art world in the 1930s through the 1950s with the unbelievable obstacles they had to overcome. It's uh, amazing. Fantastic. It makes, us, it makes life look easy for us. And sometimes we need that, I think, a reminder that we've come so far. I mean, there's still far to go, but... But the thing yeah. that inspires me the most by it is that these people, the men and the women, were so committed. 
They were starving. They mm. were living in cold water flats. They just were so committed to their work. Yeah. That's fantastic. I mean, it's, it's wonderful. I, we stand on the shoulders of people like that. And I love getting that yeah. inspiration. Fantastic. Well, Paula, this has been so wonderful. And we will link to a lot of the things you talked about down below in, in the show notes. And I want to thank you for making the time to be on this podcast and share your expertise and your experiences, because I really do think that just talking with other creatives and hearing what other people do and go through is the ticket to finding your own path. And we'll each find that path differently, won't we? We will. But having some examples never hurts. <laughs> no, we have to help each other. We're, Michael and I have always been about that. You help each other. Indeed. You don't. You yes, don't have. Indeed. We never had secrets. If you if you think you have secrets, you're not going to go anywhere. You got to share it. Yeah. So yeah, what goes around comes around. It's been a great pleasure, Erin. Thank you for having me. Thank you for sharing, Paula. I appreciate it so much. Well, that's it for the artist appeals. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I've enjoyed recording it. I just love talking with all these artists and business people. It's phenomenal, and I've learned so much. I hope you've learned something, too. You can get more information. You can check out some of the links that we talked about in these podcasts at theartistappeals.com. That's theartistappeals.com. Thanks, and have a good one.